This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'm, I'm Rusty Gage. I'm the, uh, as Ajit said, I'm one of the co-directors with Margaret and Ajit and Pascal. And uh, one of the co-sponsors of today's uh, presentation to you all. I'm going to give you a little bit of an explanation for why we're having this meeting today, how we came about doing this uh, meeting, and uh, I'm also going to give you the first of our presentations today on, on my approach and take to this. So some of you are uh, longtime per- participants in these symposia and will be somewhat intimidated probably by the title of this current presentation, Cellular Molecular Mechanisms that are underlying or the evolving the differences between humans and non-human primates. So, so probing the molecular, molecular cellular differences. So remember what uh, she told us. He said that uh, our goal is to really understand uh, where we came from. How did we get here? And what is the mechanism or what is the way in which this happened. And in, in truth, most of what we've uh, been talking about for many years is uh, the ways in which we actually examine this is by looking at DNA from uh, post-mortem tissue from our closest relatives, uh, even Neanderthals now, and sequencing that DNA and comparing it with humans and looking for the difference that exists. Uh, we have postmortem tissue itself where we can look at brain structures and see how they may have changed uh, with evolution, anatomical kinds of information. And of course, at the core of it, we have uh, archaeological evidence for bones where we can get brain casts and look at how the brain's size has changed. And even if you get a good cast, you can see how certain areas of the brain have grown more in different species or different uh, evolving creatures over time these uh, endocasts. And finally, uh, we have archaeological evidence that gives insights into uh, perhaps even the thought processes that were going on while our species were evolving. So uh, in the case of DNA, we, 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 ha- we have genes. In the case of the postmortem tissue, we, we have tissues and, and, and uh, slices and histo- histological evidence uh, with bones, we have inferences about size and structure, and of course, archaeological evidence, we have um, cultural implications. And so a missing piece for this, for a lot of us, has been really what we consider to be mechanisms at the level of uh, cellular and molecular events. And uh, there's a growing interest in this piece here, and uh, we call it the missing link. It's a joke. Just to get the, um, uh, missing link in the sequence of events. And uh, there are some recent uh, technologies that have been developed that have allowed us to get insights into tissues. Uh, one is using what you'll hear a bit about, which is called induced pluripotent cells. This is the ability to take somatic cells from any species and convert them into a embryonic cell that can be differentiated into all cells of the body, including neurons. So, 
for living organisms that we normally can't penetrate and see how their brain functions, we can now look at behavioral function, look at the genes while they're active, while they're alive. In addition, uh, you'll hear a lot about uh, model organisms where once genes have been identified that might have implications for certain growth patterns that are unique to humans, they can be tested experimentally in living animals, different species, that uh, reveal to us how that unique change in the gene may have fostered a meaningful change that is relevant to how it is that we became who we are. So that is the, that's the motivation. And, and uh, you know, on a personal note, I would say that my, my hope is, my uh, you know, hopes are always mixed with worries, uh, is, the worry is not that we develop a whole new area of research that just looks in towards ourselves, uh, explaining more and more about the cellular molecular mechanisms, but rather that these new tools become vehicles for expanding outward into the other panoply of ways in which we can, we can study uh, evolution. There's a, an emerging idea now, sort of a re-emergence of a concept in, uh, in science uh, called convergent science. It was a term that uh, was modified uh, from the con- concept of consilience, but it, it is the idea that um, different levels of science that normally talk specifically to themselves begin to understand how they can transmit information from one level to the next. And that's how we believe or hope that new concepts and, and deeper thoughts will emerge. So our challenge, as most of us as cellular molecular biologists that are speakers in this symposium, is to, to think about how we can use this information to stretch this and expand to these other areas that are so important for understanding uh, the underlying principles. All right, with that, I I will uh, present the first presentation talking, and and hopefully this will act a little bit as an introduction to the concepts that we're trying to to present. So I'm going to very specifically talk about modeling uh, human evolution uh, remarkably in a dish. And uh, this involves this technology I talked to you about called induced pluripotent cells, which I'll go into in, in some depth. Now, studying evolution in a dish uh, has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the comparison between humans, what we're really comparing are these particular cell types and not, not the uh, full organisms. But the hope is that or the belief is that much of the critical changes that have occurred occur in the brain. And that uh, this transition point from early brain cells to mature brain cells uh, is that period of maturation within a cell lineage wherein much of the magic happens that will be seen as the known or unknown differences between humans and our closest relatives. And as you'll hear, uh, some common themes emerging from these speakers that these early, very early events, there's there's real differences that are occurring in the human species relative to our uh, common relatives. Now, the advantage of this approach is that uh, we can obtain uh, somatic cells or skin biopsies uh, and now this technology can be done with uh, pretty much any somatic cell. 
but you can, you can obtain them from uh, many species in very non-intervention ma- uh, manner. And I'll, uh, we've been developing basically a cellular zoo now for the last uh, eight or ten years where we collect biopsies from species, uh, a variety of different species. And I'll be talking to you about these, uh, these species from human, bonobo, chimp, gorilla, and rhesus. And uh, in particular, you should remember that the chimps and bonobos share a significant amount of their genome, uh, and yet the brain size difference between our brains and our closest relatives is really quite striking. We'll hear more about that. And other differences are that in this last period of 7 million years when we evolved, uh, many of the genes, many of the diseases that have evolved seem, appear to be unique to humans. So uh, along with the acquisition of the unique features that it is to be human, we've also acquired susceptibility to a variety of diseases. And so one of the advantages or one of the goals of understanding these cellular molecular underlying mechanisms that are involved in human species evolution will tell us about uh, the unique features of these diseases. So in this particular case, uh, we've, we've acquired pluripotent stem cells from a variety of, uh, of uh, species. We take the cultures, we grow them uh, in, in dishes, and we treat them exactly the same. And we use a series of uh, chemical modifications and structural modifications to change these fibroblasts into what amounts to an embryonic stem cell. And this is called induced pluripotency, and in the end, we have a series of, of clonal populations of cells that can grow uh, indefinitely, and under the right conditions, these cells can be induced to differentiate into neurons of a variety of different types, and it's this ability to be able to look at each of the different stages, so we can look at the early stages of somatic cells as they're growing in a dish as iPS cells, or as the intermediates that lead to uh, differentiation of different, uh, different cell types. Now, obviously, there are limitations, and we should be, we're aware of those. Um, we're examining intrinsic differences that can be detected in these individual cells. Uh, there, there must be a genetic or an epigenetic event that, ha- that is underlying any phenotype or difference that we can detect. Culture, when I say there are cultural differences, in this case I mean tissue culture, not advanced culture. Uh, Social experience is something that's very difficult to, we're not going to capture that social uh, acquired knowledge. Dietary uh, kinds of events are are difficult to completely uh, capture. And of course, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about our attempts to get in vivo context by transplantation. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really questioned whether or not the, the in vitro relevancy of the of phenotypes that we look at, how well do they transfer? That's going to take, that takes additional kinds of experiments. But what it really comes down to is are there differences that are detectable at the cellular level that are relevant to the understanding of human origins? So there are some basic features that we can look at uh, right away, and, and uh, we know that, for example, humans... Uh, have 46 and chimp have 48 chromosomes, that uh, they, they express certain genes that identify the most primitive state. 
so we can look for those to make sure that when we do the conversion, they are retained within a certain fate. And uh, we can test whether or not these embryonic stem cells that we get uh, behave equivalently or, or not equivalently. So it's really important right at the very beginning to determine whether or not we're seeing differences or not. So we, we can monitor them with a variety of, of, of known differences. So here are some uh, simple ways in which we can do this morphologically and genetically, determine uh, by karyotyping the uh, chromosomes that are inherent and whether or not there's any gross differences between them, whether or not the cells grow at the same rate, whether or not they express the same genes. And in our first attempts at this now, uh, years ago, uh, we first started by looking at these immature cells, these, these IPS, what they're called induced pluripotent cells, to see if we could determine any differences between them. And we did this by extracting uh, DNA, and we looked for the expression of all the genes that were expressed in these uh, cells between all the species to see whether or not we could find any fundamental differences that, would, that were, were apparent at that early stage. And I won't go through this in any in any depth, but we back uh, several years ago now, we reported that there were features uh, particularly interesting to interest to our lab that there are genetic elements in the brain that have this capacity for for hopping around or jumping from one, lo- one location to another, and these genes uh, were were very differently regulated in chimps and hu- chimps and bonobos relative to humans, to this to the extent that. Humans uh, had, had developed a mechanism by expressing two particular genes that suppress the activity of these line elements. So the amount of new elements or new genetic material that was added into the germline through this particular vehicle was suppressed in humans relative to our closest um, uh, relative species and uh, by virtue of the overexpression of these, uh, these genes. We went on to uh, hypothesize uh, about this and have continued working on these early primitive uh, cells, uh, exploring this this role that these mobile elements play in carving and crafting uh, novel uh, phenotypes within within not just in the human species but in other organisms as well. It, it, one interesting point that I like to to make is that. Um, these line elements, this increase in insertions of these pieces of DNA throughout the, the genome add to the genetic diversity of the offspring. And we as humans have suppressed this ability to add this uh, added element of diversity, which may mean a decrease in behavioral diversity as well, limiting our, 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 culture, uh, limiting our genetic um, diversity. Now, this... Less genetic diversity leads to a dependence now more on cultural change for adaptation to changes in the environment. And we are exploring this as a hypothesis for how humans are quite similar to each other. So what I'm going to talk to you about today uh, is in the next few minutes is about more newer work looking at the next phase of differentiation, which are these neural progenitor cells and then subsequently neurons. So we've developed a protocol where we can uh, generate cells into these uh, very homogeneous neural progenitor cells. They express uh, very uh, unique and features that we can compare across species. 
And there are methodologies now that allow us to uh, use unbiased methods to measure all the genetic expression that's unique to these, these cells and compare them with one another. When we do this across all the species that we've looked at from chimps, bonobos, gorillas, and rhesus versus humans, we see 2,000 genes that are differentially expressed at a very, very high level. And among them, when we look at clusters of genes that have categories in common called gene ontology, we find that about a quarter of those are genes that are involved in how cells migrate uh, within a tissue situation. So migration, the movement of of neurons, seems to be... Uh, a feature that stands out. So we set up an assay system to measure whether or not we could detect that genetic difference in a a functional difference. This is an assay where the cells are plated on a culture dish and we make a a cut here and then we ask how quickly they can migrate into their situation and we can monitor the cells as they grow into this and we can color them and, and do this in a much more high, high resolution where we can track each cell and look at the direction that it goes. When we do this across multiple species, we find that humans are much slower in their migratory pathway. So by 12, 24 hours, this pathway is fully uh, aggregated together within, with, within migration. Just as another example, uh, we can look at this in another way, looking at migration again as a feature of these uh, cells, we can label the chimp cells in green, uh, sorry, in red, and the human cells in green, and then mix them together and put them at the bottom of a, of a, uh, a dish that has microgrooves where we can monitor and, and, and has a gradient where we can monitor the rate at which the cells grow. And this allows us to actually race our two cells against each other and see who can get there faster. And I can... Uh, we can track again, so it's another method of this uh, thing. So here we have, and it sort of depends on when the cells get into the groove, as to, and then you can start monitoring how quickly they move. So here's a, the green cells of the human moving along the groove. These are the grooves that they're in here. We're watching this cell move along. Finally, we get a, a chimp cell in there, and the chimp cell sort of takes off and, and moves. Again, evidence, another way in which we can begin to monitor these differences. And when we do thousands of these movies, we see that both chimp and bonobo are really quite similar in their rate and direction of trajectory uh, as compared to the human, which appears to be much lower. In a final assay here, we did uh, a floating assay of cells that migrate out from the central core, and we can measure the core of the cells and the distance that they migrate. And without much uh, effort, you can see that the human cells while plated at the same density, migrate out over a period of time at a much slower rate relative to the other cells. Now, as a final assay for this migration assay, we uh, took advantage of the fact that we had colored cells, and we transplanted them into a a mouse that had a deleted immune system. So it didn't recognize the species difference between humans and chimps versus itself. So we could transplant these cells directly into the brain in various regions and monitor the rate at which they were uh, migrating. And I, I should say, those of people who work in this field know that human cells, when implanted, uh, tend to aggregate uh, very closely. So we weren't really anticipating a difference, but it's really quite striking when we examine these cells uh, months after the transplantation, we see that there is... Uh, or in, in, but we, it was noticed even as soon as uh, several weeks afterwards that the human cells here 
aggregated around the site of the injection, whereas the chimp cells migrated at a much uh, greater rate, and we could replicate this, or we could quantify this uh, very dramatically. So we know now that human, uh, with all these assays put together, we can convince ourselves that there really is this intrinsic migration difference, which is reflected in the gene differences that we can see between them. Now, now that we can transplant these cells, we can watch their, their maturation into cells and the, the sort of morphological changes that happens to a neuron as it matures is something that's really well documented um, and with a wonderful collaboration with uh, uh, Katrina Simifrandi, we were able to, to and, and Bianca, her student, we were able to monitor these changes in vivo between chimp and, and human. And the advantage is that we're mixing the cells together and injecting them in the exact site and can monitor them as they migrate away and then look at them over a period of, uh, in this case, something like 19 or 19 weeks, and we're looking at a variety of morphological features. And strikingly, what we can do is we can, we can map each individual cell in the brain and look how, it's, uh, how it morphologically develops so we can see them over extended periods of time. And they're color-coded for us in the brain so we can see what they, how they change. Here you can see, if we look at dendritic length, they're pretty much the same, uh, matching the same at these early stages. And then humans dramatically take off around six to eight weeks. And another time we look at segments, that's the number of branches they have also separates at that period. And then finally we have uh, the, the number of spines. So these are the features on each one of the dendrites where connections are, are coming into the cells. So we see an accelerated differentiation of the neuroprogenitor cells over time. So as a final piece, what we did is, is, is there a functional consequence? So we can measure actually the electrical activity, whether or not they fire action potentials in individual cells. And in these new devices called a multi-electrode array, we can plate the cells and then bring them back to the array and monitor their activity, how they communicate with each other over a period of time. So they're resting on the top of these electrodes, and we can measure their activity. Uh, the system actually allows us to monitor a variety of features. We can measure not just the single spikes, but we can measure issues like uh, bursting, whether or not they fire in bursts, or they, uh, whether or not mo- all many cells that are connected with each other fire at the, at the same time. So finally, in this last piece of uh, information, I'll give you this uh, final data. The way you read this, here at two weeks, each one of these is a channel on which cells exist. So here's a, the human cell. We have a few of them, few cells in there that are active, but clearly at two weeks, the chimp and the bonobo are both, many, many more cells are active, and not only that, but you're seeing some synchrony, meaning that cells are actually connected to each other. And, but by eight weeks, six weeks, here you have the humans now bursting and synchronized activity at a much higher rate than the, uh, than the chimps, evidencing once again that there's this early event where the chimps are and the bonobos seem to be maturing at an accelerated rate relative to the humans. We see this reflected not just in the physiology here, the chimps ex- extending quickly and then being bypassed there. And again, we have this window of time. And the way we're beginning to think about this, and, and I think it's consistent with many, many others, is that in human evolution, there's a, a developmental uh, delay. Retardation is not a really good word. And or uh, 
what has been termed as neoteny, and in this case it doesn't fit exactly because we're not looking at the endpoint, but it is a, a developmental uh, uh, delay in humans in their maturation that's been proposed as a possible mechanism that contributes to the rise of many human species-specific, including the increase in brain size and the emergence of human-specific cognitive traits. So uh, we and others are interested in this, this delay feature and how this delay feature may may result in these, uh, these morphological and genetic features that we see. And, and we'll be talking more about the mechanisms that may control this sort of delayed event, which is so important for, the human, for human evolution. So in conclusion, I, I hope I've tried to convince you that the iPS cell approach is uh, we're able to generate similar type cells in humans and in non-human primates. And, and there's this, a significant amount of similarity that, that underlies their maturation. But we also uh, discover unique features that are, now this is important, cell intrinsic, the cell autonomous that we can detect in vitro. And this consistent feature uh, reflects this in the, in the migration of the cells, in the maturation of the dendrites, as well as its electrophysiological activity. So we think that uh, these, these approaches can be used as a model to study the dynamic developmental comparative differences between humans and primates and non-human primates and the differences that this has on, on an evolutionary perspective. So as usual, we have uh, many people to thank. Uh, a lot of the sort of leader of this project who unfortunately was not able to attend is uh, Carol Marchetto, a variety of people in my own lab that have uh, more recently played a role in various aspects of, of the analysis, but uh, uh, Katrina Simifarindi and Branca have been uh, key players in this uh, morphological analysis that they, they are experts at. I have a variety of people in our local CARTA group that are important, and uh, my close colleague, uh, Alison Motri, who's been with us on the beginnings, right from the beginnings on, the, on this work. And with that, I want to thank you for your attention. Like many people here, and ever since I was a graduate student in David Nelson's lab, I've been interested in the genetic basis of this, which is what makes the human brain so unique compared to our most closest related uh, living relatives. And I would argue that, and it's already been alluded to, that geneticists have had a problem for a long time, and this is partly recognized by Alan Wilson and Mary Claire King, is that the genomes of humans and chimps are thought to be virtually identical, but 1.1, 1 1.2% genetic difference. And I already alluded to that, in fact, at the amino acid level of the proteins, they estimated half, the number is closer to about a third of the proteins are identical between the chimp and the human. Yet when you compare it to other organisms, Drosophila, you can compare it to amphibians, even uh, lizards that were compared at that time that Mary Claire was working on, there are species that have way more difference in their amino acid compositions and yet look virtually identical in behavior, in morphology. And so this led to kind of the speculation that it must be regulatory changes that make, make humans unique or structural changes that are actually important in terms of shaping our DNA in ways that couldn't be detected at the level of amino acid differences. So I've been interested in one very specific type of mutation for a very long time, duplicated sequences. You might not think of duplicated sequences as mutations, but they are. They arise as everything else as a mutation. The initial duplication is a mutational event. 
They're important for genomes for two very fundamental reasons, recognized for many years, long before molecular biology was even a, a word. Susumo Ono recognized this, and even before him, others did, that duplications are the primary force by which new genes are born within species. It doesn't matter if you're a chimp or a fly or a worm. If you want to create a new gene, there's ways to do it that don't involve duplication, but the primary way is to make an extra copy, free it from a selective constraint, new mutations occur, new function. The second actually goes back earlier from guys named Sturdivant and Bridges and Muller back into the 1930s is this idea that when you duplicate sequence and you create two sequences that are virtually identical, you've actually made the genome unstable. So there's a process called unequal crossing over that can lead to unequal crossing over events that leads to gains and losses of sequence right where the duplications live. So structurally dynamic and the potential to give birth to new genes. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about duplications, recent duplications, things that have evolved over the last 25 million years. We call them segmental duplications. There'll be duplications within a chromosome, they're inter-chromosomal duplications, and duplications within a chromosome, which we'll call intra-chromosomal duplications. And here's a map that I've often showed. This is some of the early work that we did as part of the Genome Project, where we actually built the first duplication map of the human genome. So anything that you see here in blue is an intra-chromosomal duplication. So that means it's duplicated along the chromosome. So these are your chromosomes schematically represented. The purple represent the regions that still to this day haven't been sequenced, despite what people claim that the genome is finished. These are centromeres and acrocentric and some telomeric portions of the chromosomes. The blue are, are represent the intra-chromosomal duplications that are greater than 95% identical and get greater than 10 kilobases in size. So these are the biggest events in our genome. So a couple things I want you to get from this. You can run the statistics, but you can see it by eye, that this distribution is highly non-random. Certain chromosomes, chromosomes 7, 15, 16, are particularly rich in this. The second point I want you to get from this is that if you look at the pattern, you see that a lot of these lines actually go over what appears to be long distances. This is called an interspersed pattern of duplications. That means duplications are born, but when they are born, they don't actually stay close to one another, but they, in fact, distribute, disperse from each one, one another by long distances. In fact, if you do this measurement and ask the question, what fraction of our duplicated sequences are actually separated from their ancestor by at least a megabase, are located on completely different chromosomes, the number is something like 60%. So this is your interchromosomal pattern overlaid. This is actually highly non-random as well, but it's, it's non-random in terms of regions of the genome, so near the ends of chromosomes and near these centromeres are where those uh, predominantly live. All right, so that's the pattern. Why should you care? Well, the fact that you have interspersed duplications in your genome that are separated by sometimes dozens, if not you know, many dozens of genes, means that the genes that live between those duplicated sequences are prone to be deleted or duplicated themselves because they are now inside a region of instability in our genome. And I'm not going to go into great detail, but there are now about 40 different genomic, what is called dis disorders, of which half of them are mediated by recurrent deletions, primarily but sometimes duplications, of the sequences that are these recently evolved duplicated parts of our genome. So this is an example of one that we discovered. It's called, the, uh, with the others, we discovered this back-to-back-to-back, Acoulin-DeVries syndrome. These kids have this region of the genome, only about a half a million base pairs, but it's deleted. And so they are, parents have two copies of chromosome 17, but the child has inherited one that actually is missing about 500 kilobases of sequence, and that's because there are 
human or great ape-specific duplications located at the boundaries of this sequence. Here's another one that we discovered in 2008. This is a very specific form of autism. These children are born with the exact same kind of problem, except a different portion of the genome, where there's duplications that live right here that cause this piece of DNA to be deleted at about three megabases of sequence and about a dozen genes. Every kid that's been born, that we've identified at least thus far, has a form of autism characterized by the frontal bossing of the forehead, very characteristic facial features. So it's a very rare form of autism in the human species caused by this duplication architecture. This is an example of one which doesn't actually have any clear facial morphology. Uh, this is a recurrent microdeletion on, again, chromosome 15, once again mediated by recently evolved duplicated sequences. These kids can either receive kind of an inherited form, but more often they get a de novo, which means that it happened in a germline in one of their parents. Instead of just having one disease, these kids are at risk for multiple diseases. So it turns out that we identified this associated with intellectual disability, but relatively high functioning. Uh, later it was found to be associated with autism. Later it was found to be associated with 1% of epilepsy, so idiopathic generalized epilepsy. And papers from other labs showed that it was an important risk factor, probably one of the biggest ones, for schizophrenia in the adult population. All right, so this is our duplication architecture. And you could ask yourself the question, well, why do we have this organization? It turns out when we go to the genomes of mouse, rats, dogs, cats, platypus, they don't have this type of organization. They keep their duplications organized in clusters and little pockets without being dispersed. So this dispersal of duplications has created a bad design, pardon the pun, and actually makes our genome fragile essentially because of the presence of these duplicated sequences that have evolved over the last 15, 20 million years of evolution. Humans, chimps, gorillas, we all share this, although the exact patterns are different between chimps and gorillas. And to a lesser extent, species like macaque and marmoset have fewer of these compared to that of the great apes. So I'll say the answer, I won't give you the answer, but you've actually heard some of this today. But just remember that these are not basically gene-poor regions of the genome. There's about a thousand genes, if you believe your browsers that are out there, that are mapped in these areas of the genome. And Ono argued that this is a primary force by which these new genes evolve as duplication. So before I tell you some stories, I want to tell you one, a couple other features of these duplications. One is that their accumulation over time has been non-random. So work that was alluded to, uh, work that I did with my former postdoc, Thomas Marquez, we sequenced about 100 grade ape genomes to try to estimate which duplications were fixed, which duplications were polymorphic. And this generally accepted phylogeny and the thickness of the lines indicate roughly the, the proportion of duplicated sequence that has been fixed on any branch. So the numbers are not that important, but if you, if for those of you who are interested, what this means is for every base that has been fixed as a result of single base pair mutation, there have been 2.61 bases that have been fixed in this branch as a result of duplication. But the really important, and I think relevant to this audience, is that there is a huge excess, very statistical, in, not in our branch, but in the common branch leading to humans, chimps, and gorillas. This is where we see the biggest excess of duplicated sequences. And almost all the duplications that are causing disease in our species, associated with developmental delay and autism, are mapping to duplications that evolved here and evolved right around the separation of chimps, gorillas, and humans. Second point. What I presented in terms of the organization was too simple. 
So if you actually go and actually look at the structures of these duplications within a chromosome, here's your chromosome 16. And these little numbers here indicate the structures that are indicated on the, on the right here. Anything that you see in color means that we've been able to determine the evolutionary origin of the segment. So whenever you see the same color, that means this came from the same origin, in this case on chromosome 16. And so you get this picture of duplications that are made up of different pieces of the genome that have stitched together to build these complex mosaics or modular structures. And then they, have been, they actually, some are very similar to one another, but some are actually very different than one another. But the really remarkable thing and it's true for every chromosome that's experienced this burst of duplications, is that in those chromosomes you see a specific sequence. This is indicated here by the red. We call it a core duplicon. It is the place of the genome where it seems to be the focal point for the building up of these more complex architectures. So this sequence is overrepresented, way more than you'd expect by chance. And it seems to actually be involved somehow inherently in this duplication and this interspersed duplication architecture. Moreover, most of the recurrent rearrangements that associate with disease are mated by duplication blocks that have these cores. So we came up with a simple hypothesis back in 2008. Maybe the disadvantage of this interspersed duplication architecture is offset by the emergence of new genes with new functions, which override the actually selective disadvantage of this, which is predisposing us to disease or our children to disease, and maybe contributing to the unique features that make us human, i.e. the developing of the human brain. So is there any evidence? So you've seen a version of this slide. Uh, these were examples of the youngest duplications that evolved. And so the genes are listed here at the bottom. This is the copy number that you, we estimate in the genome of multiple humans from Asia, Europe, and Africa compared to chimp, orangutan, and gorilla shown here in gray and black. So these are human-specific duplication events. And one of the things that we and Jim Sakella noticed early on is that there is actually a noticeable enrichment. It's borderline significant because there's not that many genes of genes that have been implicated in terms of brain development. And what's really interesting is if you actually look at the chimpanzee-specific or the gorilla-specific duplications, you don't see these types of genes. You see genes involved in immune response, genes involved in drug detoxification, but you don't see these types of genes actually being uh, uh, enriched. So, for example, you've heard about SIRGAP2 and RGAP11B at this meeting. GTF2IRD is a transcription factor thought to be important in terms of visual spatial defects associated with the Williams syndrome disease. GPIN, GPRIN is a G-coupled protein inducer of neurite outgrowth. CHIRFAM7A is a related nicotinamide acetylcholine receptor. HIDIN is a gene that's important in fluid flow in terms of the developing brain. SMN1, survival motor neuron protein, incredibly important in terms of spinal muscular atrophy. Two stories that you heard here, um, in fact, I think rise above a just-so story. The one you heard from Frank was about SIRGAP2C, so we were involved in kind of characterizing this duplication. Uh, it turns out that the, the actual gene itself wasn't in the human genome in 2012, so we had to actually go and clone and sequence it in 2012. It turns out there was only one copy in the human reference, and there are actually four, of which one is cl a clear pseudogene. Ancestor produced a daughter called SIRGAP2A about 3.2 million years ago with a secondary duplication leading to SIRGAP2C, which is uh, this duplicate truncated form that antagonizes the function that's thought to be important in terms of altering spine development as well as excitatory and inhibitory synapses. The other story you heard was from Wieland Huttner, 
We discovered this, well, at least a duplicated sequence, uh, back in the early 2000s uh, and actually characterized it and reconstructed the evolutionary history in 2014. And this was a gene that, as you heard today, thought to be important in terms of increasing the number of basal radioglial divisions, or also known as outer ventricular uh, cell divisions, that may be important in terms of increasing neuronal count. The common theme about these is that each of them are truncated with respect to the parent copies. They're not full length. These genes, or these duplications, are also associated with genomic instability. So in the case of 15Q13, that's associated with that schizophrenia uh, form, uh, as well as uh, uh, epilepsy that I showed you earlier. And in these particular cases, it looks as if the duplication itself may have been, in, the incomplete nature of it may have been important for the neo-functionalization of it, for the actual evolution of new function. So I want to end with a story on this last one which we just recently published and we continue to characterize. So this is this picture of chromosome 16 I showed you before. And I'm going to zoom in on these duplication blocks that evolved over the last few million years in evolution of our genome. And the reason that this particular duplication pair is so important is that recurrent rearrangements of it actually result in the second most common cause of autism in the human species. That is of a deletion of chromosome 16P11.2 and the 25 to 28 genes that map between these. So this is the second most common cause of autism genetically known in the human population, result of duplications that evolved specifically in the last few million years in our, in our species. So I convinced a student about four years ago to go and characterize this and do a comparative evolutionary study, which almost no one ever seems to do at the genetic level because they think the genomes are done. And uh, so in a weak moment, he agreed. So the student was named Xander Nuttall. And uh, this was just showing you kind of our uh, sequencing. So the way he did it was kind of old-fashioned. He took large insert clones and sequenced them and reassembled because we didn't trust the genomes that were assembled. And the way I'm going to show you these pictures, I'm just going to show you, a, uh, this is a portion of chromosome 16 on the orangutan, where the little ticks represent genes. So there's 48 genes that are represented here. The color represents the duplicated sequence, at least in my life. I always put that in color. And then the actual arrows here indicate the, kind of the, what we call syntony. So it's the order of these segments with respect to other mammalian species. So other than the duplications, this order and these genes is completely syntetic with mouse, which diverged about 80 to 90 million years ago, so we believe this is the ancestral state. So then he repeated the experiment by looking at gorillas, chimps, and humans. So I'm going to show you two chimps and two humans, or one human right now, for the exact same region of the genome. So this is the exact same area of the genome. And this, it's 1.4 megabases or million base pairs in orangutan, and these are the two chimp versions of this particular portion of chromosome 16 right here. And there's the human for comparison. Now, the colors, remember, represent the duplications. And the arrows represent the segments. And so the first thing you should get from this when you look at it is you say, God, that doesn't look even close to the same. And you'd be right. Because this area of the genome has essentially doubled in size as a result of duplications in the chimp and the human lineage. Those are all the colored bars. The interesting thing is, is that the patterns of duplications are almost completely different between chimp and human. So remember, the different colors represent different evolutionary origins. And you can see that there are some things in that, are, that are similar. These little red ticks are those core duplicons, but by and large, the structure is radically different. More interestingly, if you actually look at the actual segments of the DNA itself, you can see that they're completely ordered differently between a chimp and a human. 
these segments, these six segments of 48 genes, have been shuffled around in completely different combinations. In fact, my student estimated parsimoniously that you would need 13 large-scale structural changes to actually convert a human to a chimp structure over this. So the idea that we're 99% in this region of the genome actually has no meaning. We are so radically different, but over a very focal region of our genome. Coming back to disease, this is the area that causes autism in our kids. And it's because we have these duplications in a direct orientation of the same type on either side. If you look at the chimp region 5, both haplotypes, they don't have this. They don't have the duplication architecture that would predispose to disease. In other words, they are not predisposed to developing this form of autism because they don't actually have the architecture to predispose to instability. So what do humans look like if you compare them? So thankfully, we look much more similar to one another. So this is three different human chromosomes that are being compared. But we do differ. And we differ over only one portion. And this is indicated here by, the air, by these orange and green arrows. There's a set of, there's a region of about 100 kilobases that is expanding and contracting like accordions on this region, which predisposes to autism. But on either side, we are expanding and contracting this 100 kilobase cassette. And if you look really carefully, you'll see that there are four genes right over the area of change. And these are genes that are important both in drug detoxification, we have found, but also a genes important in terms of iron metabolism, this gene called BOLA2. This is a gene that's actually been shown biochemically, both in vitro and in vivo, to be important in terms of recruiting more iron into a cell and, and helping it to essentially uh, become stable in terms of the proteins that it produces. So how do humans vary if you look at thousands of them? So this is 2,500 humans that we're comparing now for a copy number of this 100 kilobase segment, which contains this BOLA2 gene. And here's the, here's the interesting part. You look at humans from all the different continents, and they're quite variable in terms of their copy. But all of them, or I should say none of them, go back to the ancestral state is what you see in chimps, gorillas, and orangutans. So every human has at least three. Most of us have five or six of this duplication. Few at three, but none go back to two, is what you see in these species. And here's where it gets really cool. If you compare it to Neanderthal and Denisova, which you've heard a little bit about, they separated from us very recently, only about 400 to 500,000 years ago. They look like chimps and gorillas in terms of their copy number. If we look at archaic hominins, or I should say archaic humans, not hominins, archaic humans, so this would be humans that lived 30 to 40,000 years ago they look like us. So this is 400,000 years ago. This is 50,000 years ago. So what's really remarkable is that when we estimate the time, and we can do this with phylogenetic approaches, we estimate the birth of this duplication to being about 282,000 years ago. This is where most paleontologists estimate the root of the species Homo sapiens. Well, of course, the plus or minus is 75,000 here. <laughs> One thing we can show from basically doing a, a work, using methods involving evolutionary phylogenetic methods, is that the rate at which this expanded is too rapid to be explained based on strictly neutral evolution. So this is not evolving neutrally. It's actually the fact that we haven't gone back to the, the actual ancestral state is very unusual, specifically for a duplication where copy number variation is always occurring. And copy number of this piece of DNA actually correlates expression. So those of you who have more copies actually have more of this bullet 2 expressed. So 
We looked at this in terms of expression differences between chimp and human with Rusty. So he had actually published this early work that he mentioned already, looking at induced pluripotent stem cells in chimps, bonobos, and humans. And even though it didn't make his top 10 list, it should have, because this uh, gene was actually expressed 7.5-fold higher on average in the chimp, com- or I should say the human compared to the chimp. And the reason when we went back and looked at this is because there was variance in actually the copy number estimates in human, because he looked at more than one human. So we redid these experiments with his group, and we could show that, in fact, there is a big difference between humans and chimps and bonobos, but the biggest difference happens early in development, what we consider induced pluripotent stem cells. There's still some difference between uh, these NPCs, neuronal progenitor cells, but that's the biggest difference that we see. The one last point I'll make is that, in fact, when we actually look at the actual gene itself, there is just a simple duplicate gene which is entirely represented. But because these duplications are often mosaic, we actually have identified a gene which looks like a complete fusion of part of BOLA2 with another serotonin kinase, which now makes a duplication that has a fusion duplication that has an open reading frame. This is, in fact, to my knowledge, the only Homo sapiens-specific gene that distinguishes chimp, I should say, humans from Neanderthals and Denisova, because Denisova and Neanderthal do not have this duplication, therefore do not have the fusion. Coming back to the disease, going back to the kids that actually have autism and mapping the breakpoints of those kids, where do those breakpoints specifically occur? 96% of the children that we've looked at that have this breakpoint associated with autism the breakpoint maps to the Homo sapiens-specific segment that evolved on the order of about uh, 280,000 years ago. And then this is just to show you that if we look at those kids that have low copy number, because those kids do have lower copy than most, we in fact find out that in fact half of them, and the numbers are still small, they have problems with anemia and I require iron supplementation compared to the rest of the kids with this particular deletion who still have high copies of bullet 2, which do not have anemia or, or the very have low incidence of anemia. So we think it's actually relevant also to disease in kids that are anemic with autism. So in summary, I hope I've convinced you how cool our genome and how absolutely chaotic it is with respect to duplications, that we've had this burst of duplications that has occurred on the order of 8 to 15 million years ago before we separated as species, but as we were separating the species. This wired us for disease, So we actually have a lot of additional recurrent structural changes in our genome uh, as a result of this duplication architecture. But this has come with benefits. and We think that we hypothesize the core duplicon hypothesis is that the negative result of having this interspersed architecture is offset by the emergence of new genes. We consider SIRGAP2C and RGAP11B to be some of our best examples of these types, but we think there will be others. And we also think BOLA2 is particularly interesting because it's a Homo sapiens-specific expansion, which we think will be relevant for iron homeostasis or improving our ability to recruit iron, um, and at the same time is predisposing us to the most common or second most common cause of autism in the human species. So when I think about the evolution of our genome, and this is the way I think about it, I think of actually a balancing act between both disease and evolution. Um, these are the folks that did all the work, and... I will show you Seattle in the sun, because this is just to show you that the sun does shine in Seattle. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.